Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Kufim Gimel Medalek by the Mishnah. Beit Shemai Omim, Mabriin Mala Shuchan Atzamot Viklipin. Beit Shemai says you can take the discard, the refuse that's on the table, and remove it actively from the table. As Rashi explains over here, the Atzamot are the leftovers from the meat that was consumed, and the Klipin are the shells that were left over from the nuts that were consumed in the meal. So that which was left over from the items that were consumed, you're allowed to remove those items from the table. Rashi then goes on to say that the Atzamot we're speaking about here are items that have no utility. They're not useful for people anymore because the meat has been eaten off of them, and they're no longer or the behemah because either they're very hard bones or they don't contain any marrow inside of them. And because of that, they're not Ra'ui Lekelev or Behema as well. And similarly, the Klipin are completely useless, and they are Muksa. So then why are you allowed to remove them? So Rashi tells us over here, because the late Lehub, the Beit Shemai Muksa. Beit Shemai does not subscribe to this idea of Muksa, or in essence, they hold like Rabbi Shimon that there is no Din of Muksa over here. Rashi's position is that these items here are completely useless. The Bayatosafot over here, and a wide range of Rishonim, disagree with Rashi and say that that's not the case. I want to explain in a second why it is that they disagree. You take the tabletop, and then you dump off the items that are on the tabletop. The reason to do that is because in their day, the frame of the table was independent of the tabletop. There was a flat piece of wood that sat on top of the frame of the table, and you were able then to remove the tabletop and then carry it away. So what they suggest doing is not carrying the muksa itself, which are these items that were discarded from whatever you consumed during the meal, rather pick up the tabletop, which is a davar hamutar, take that, and then discard of the items. Similar to what we saw in the previous Mishnayot with the kar and the keset. When you had money or a stone that was left on the bed, on the pillow, and you needed to remove it, we said you can't carry it actively, but rather you tilt the item over, and then it falls off. So similarly over here, you carry this item and you dump off the discard or that which is refuse from the table to the location that you want it. Now, it's interesting over here for two reasons, which is number one, the Ramban points out over here that you're allowed to take the tabletop to wherever you want and remove whatever's on it to a place where you're comfortable discarding it. And the reason being is because you need the table area and that's called Sarach Mikomo. Since you need that area, you're allowed to carry it to wherever you need and discard it over there. Now we saw in yesterday's daf that Rabbi Yochanan qualified the Mishnah and said that Lo Shonu, the Mishnah only applies when the Torah Kufo, when you need the pillow itself, you need the bed itself, you need the item upon which the Muksa is placed then you just tilt it to the side and it falls off. On the other hand, if you need the location where the pillow and the Muksa are sitting or you need the area wherever the Dabr Heter and Muksa are sitting, then you can lift it up and take it to wherever you want because once you have permission to pick it up and remove it because it's Tzorach Mekomo you can carry it and put it down wherever you'd like. So that's the view of the Ramban, that same thing over here. You can carry the tabletop and take it to wherever you want and discard of it. The Ritva points out, well, if that's the case, our Mishnah is supportive of Rabbi Yochanan's contention. And why doesn't the Gemara bring our Mishnah as a proof to that? So therefore, the Bir Ocha, when he's discussing this, points out that the Smag does not think that. That the Smag thinks that the explanation of our Mishnah is that you have to dump it out immediately adjacent to the table. So you see from there that it's not a proof to Rabbi Yochanan because it doesn't show you that you can take it to wherever you want. In the end, Ocha, the Shulchan Aruch, brings down our Mishnah qualified by Rabbi Yochanan. So the Indian Ocha, it turns out that we do possibly like Rabbi Yochanan, just that the Mishnah is not necessarily a proof to him because it doesn't tell us where you discard of the items that are on the tabletop. But the halacha, if you need the tabletop, you can dump whatever's on it immediately adjacent to it, and that's it. That's all kufot. And then if you need the area to seat people around, you need it to be clean, you need to be able to utilize the table, then it's sarach mekomo, and then you can take the tabletop to wherever you need to discard of those items that are on the tabletop. So in the end, 
the locha is like Rabbi Yochanan. The only thing is that our Mishnah is not necessarily approved because we don't know whether Mishnah is telling you that you can dump it wherever you want, like the Ramban suggests, because it's Arach Mikomo, or like the Samad suggests that it's only allowing you to tilt the table over immediately adjacent to it to dump off the refuse, but it doesn't allow you to carry any wells. And therefore, you don't necessarily have a proof to Rabbi Yochanan's position. That's the first thing. The second thing that is asked by many Rishonim is, why don't you have over here a busis l'davar asur? We have learned already in the previous Mishnayot that whenever you have an item that is asur, a muksa, that's placed intentionally on an item that is mutar, the item that is mutar becomes a basis l'davar asur. It becomes a base. It now becomes subject to whatever the standing or status of the muksa item is. That asur item is then conveyed to the item upon which it sits, because it now becomes a stand or something that holds it up. So over here, you're intentionally putting the refuse onto the table, so that has, what we saw before, creates a basis, and the items that you're putting on are items that are muksa. And so why don't you have a basis to davar asur, and then how can you pick up the tabletop and dump it out? So that's the question that is raised by the Balei Atosafot in Masechet Beitza, on the first daf of Masechet Beitza, and there they suggest that it's really not the case that it's a buses to davar asur because the rabbeinu tam suggests if it only becomes a buses davar asur if you intend to leave the item there for the entire shabbat if you intend to leave it there for a longer duration then it becomes the buses to davar asur but over here when you're placing the items on the table you intend to remove them in a very short time and therefore the table does not become a buses to davar asur that's one possibility the other possibility is that there are other items on the table which is that there's a davar mutar on the table, you have items like bread or other pieces of food on the table, and therefore the table is a basis l'davar asur or l'davar ha-mutar. And clearly, in terms of the relative value, when you speak about basis l'davar asur mutar here the hetter, things that are on the table, are more valuable than the items that are for discard or for refuse, and therefore it doesn't become a basis l'davar asur, but rather a basis l'davar asur umutar. Or the other possibility is that it only becomes a basis l'davar asur when you intend to put the item on this item particularly. It's the placement that is important to you. And over here, you don't really care whether these items end up here or end up on the floor. It's just convenient for you to put them onto the table, and therefore it does not become a basis l'davar ha-asur because you don't care whether it lands on the table or on the floor. Today, where we might care where it lands, or people would not be comfortable having these items fall onto the floor rather than onto the table, that reason may no longer be relevant because it does matter. And then you would be creating a buses of asur, and you'd have to rely on the other two items. Or the other possibility introduced by the Ragbit is the fact that these items are of such de minimis value that they can't create a situation in which the underlying item that is holding them up becomes batel, becomes subordinate to these items. You can talk about a basis of Davar Asur if the Isra has significance and then it's placed on an item that becomes a basis, some sort of stand to hold it up. But over here where the items are so meaningless or so worthless, it can't be that then the table becomes batel to these items and therefore you can't create a basis of Davar Asur here. So that's the view of the Rishonim as to why Beit Hillel allows you to move the table here even though you're ending up with mooks on the table. And it also seems to suggest that Beit Hillel subscribes to that position of Rabbi Yehuda that we do worry about muksa. And since we do worry about muksa, we have to do it in kalach yad, we have to do it in a manner that is tilto minatsad. And so you remove these items by carrying the whole tabletop rather than carrying the items themselves. Then the Mishnah adds, Mavirim ilfnei ha-shulchan, perin pachot mikzayit, v'seyar shel afunim, 
visar adashim. So you're allowed to remove from the table all these items, which are crumbs of bread that are less than a kezayit. The pods of the peas, once you've opened up the pods to take the peas out of the pods, the pods themselves can be taken off the table. Visar adashim. Here it means the klipa, or the shells from which the lentils came out of. Why is that the case? Because it is edible for animals, or it's good for animals to eat. It's good feed for the animals. So now, based on that, Rashi now explains the two parts of the Mishnah in the following manner. He says that the second group of items over here are items that were ra'u'i the machal adam, and then, once they were utilized, the residual, the refuse, is ra'u'i the machal behema, and since it's ra'u'i the machal behema, you can then carry it actively off the table, or remove it from the table, and that's why Beit Hillel does not disagree with Beit in this latter part of the Mishnah. They only argue in the first half of the Mishnah where the case is that they are Ein Ru'uy and Lekelev, where the bones were totally useless. They weren't Ru'uy for Adam, not Ru'uy for Kelev. And that's why you had a machloka between Beit Hillel and Beit Shemai. So Rashi's explanation differentiates between the two sections of the Mishnah. The first section is a machloket, because it's not roi l'adam, not roi l'beima. The second section is not a machloket, because it's also roi l'beima. The problem with Rashi's explanation, as pointed out by the Bali Tosafot, is that the Gemara scribes this section of the Mishnah about the pea pods and the lentil shells and the little pieces of bread to Rabbi Shimon, and says that only according to Rabbi Shimon are you allowed to move these items, and that is because they're Ra'u'i the Behema. What you see from here is that even according to Rabbi Shimon, who does not subscribe to Moksa, he still requires that there be some utility for this item. And therefore, only when they are Ra'u'i the Behema are you allowed to move them, even according to Rabbi Shimon, which means even according to Beit Shammai. And for that reason, the Ba'i Tosavot say that Rashi's explanation about the Atzimot is incorrect, and that the Atzimot and the Klipin that we're speaking about in the first half of the Mishnah must also be ru'uyim lebehema. They have to be edible for an animal or ru'uy, have utility for animals. And therefore he and all the other Rishonim disagree with Rashi and say that the bones that we're speaking about here are ru'uyim lekelev, and the klipim we're speaking about here are also items that were ru'uy for a behema. And therefore the machloket here is between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Shimon who says that there is no moksa still requires that there be at least some minimum utility like ru'uy lebehema. And because of that, you have the Beit Shemai who subscribes to them saying that you can take these items directly off the table. And Beit Hilel holds like Rabbi Huda saying that you can't because there's a problem of muksa. Muchan le Adam is not muchan le behema. Just because it was ro'oi for an Adam doesn't make it ro'oi for a behema or allow you to utilize it for a behema because that's a change in its status in the middle of Shabbat. And that change of status is a problem of muksa. And similarly, in the latter part here, where it speaks about the other items that you can take off the table, including the bread, the pods of the peas, and the shells of the other shim, all of those are only according to Rabbi Shimon or the Shita of Beit Shammai, that they are in the Behemah, and therefore it allows you to remove them even on Shabbat. But Beit Hila would disagree in this section as well. The Pnei Yoshua, in the beginning of Beitzah, answers on behalf of Rashi, based on what the Maginei Shlomo says, which is that the Machloket here in the first part of the Mishnah is about an issue of Geref Shorei, which is that these items are completely useless or worthless, but they're also disgusting, because they've been completely eaten out, and there's nothing left in them, that they're actually Me'usim. And therefore the Machloket of Beit Shemai and Beit Hilo in the first part of the Mishnah, according to Rashi, is whether there is a Gerev Sharei you can remove actively, just take the items and remove them. Or even with a Gerev Sharei, should you remove it bitilto minatzad? Do it in a way that you're not directly in contact with the item. And Rashi connects that machloket to whether you can directly interact with a Gerev Sharei to the machloket Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda with regards to Muksa. 
And just like by Muksa, Rabbi Shimon says you can interact with it directly, so too by Gerev Sharei you can interact with it directly. And Rabbi Yehudu thinks that you can't, you have to do Tiltu Minatzad. He also thinks by Gerev Sharei you need to do a Tiltu Minatzad. And that's how he explains Rashi's view. And then the second part of the Mishnah, which even according to Rabbi Shimon, in order to move something that's Muksa, you would need to have Iroila Chilad Behima. That's why the Gemara says that the latter part of the Mishnah is Lashita Rabbi Shimon. But again, it would only be according to Beit Shemai, not according to both Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel, according to this explanation. The other possibility, which will develop more in the Gemara and Beitzah, is the possibility that Rashi believes that anything that was coming into Shabbat, then that item can't lose its status on that Shabbat itself. And so see, even though these bones and these klipin are no longer ro'oy l'achilat adam or ro'oy l'achilat kelev, since they came into Shabbat being ro'oy l'achilat adam, they don't automatically lose their standing, and since they don't lose their standing, therefore they can be removed on Shabbat, even though technically they are not usable or you have any utility at all. And he thinks that Rabbi Shimon in that case will say that you can move them or there's not a problem of Muksa, even though they're not Ro'oy Behema. But again, that's all because it started as Ro'oy Achilat Adam, and therefore going to Rashi, that has a residual impact on the item itself. Now the Mishnah continues and says, Svog, when you're dealing with a sponge, Imeshlo or Beitachiza, if it has some sort of handle that allows you to grasp the sponge without actually squeezing the sponge, Kanchinbo, then you can use it to, according to Rashi, wipe things up. According to the Raibod, you can use it to soak things up. Vimlav, if it does not have a handle on it, Kanchinbo, then you cannot use it, according to Rashi, to wipe things up with or going to the rivet to absorb things. The problem is that you then have to grasp the sponge itself. When you grasp the sponge itself, you're going to squeeze out the liquids from inside of it, and that's a problem of schita. So if it has a handle that prevents the schita, then you can go ahead and utilize it. If it does not have a handle, and never you have to grasp the sponge itself, which is going to cause possibly schita by your utilization of it, there you can't use it on Shabbat. There is a girsa which the Baal Yatosvot take out and say that it's unintelligible, which is that that either way you can utilize it. And Tosav says, it can't make any sense because in the Gemara it tells us that if you don't have a handle on it, there's nobody that thinks that it's mutar to use it. So you can't have a position of the Chachamim that says it is mutar to use it and therefore he eliminates it from the Girsa. And then he says, the Mishnah continues, ben kachu, ben kach, nital either way you can carry it on Shabbat. That means that the sponge, whether it has a handle on it or doesn't have a handle on it, you're allowed to carry it on Shabbat because it is a kli. It seems that it is a kli shemalachto l'isur. And since it's a kli shemalachto l'isur, you can carry it for tzarech gufo or tzarech mikomo. You'd have those dispensations. Although there are those that want to suggest, like the Svatemet, who suggests that it's a kli shemalachto l'heter. And since you're allowed to use it when it is dry on Shabbat, even the sponge that does not have a handle on it, therefore becomes a kli shemalachto l'heter. And if it's a klish makhto then you can carry it on Shabbat. But, with regards to tumah, eno mikabel tumah. It's not mikabel tumah, that's for two reasons. One is that it's not made of a material that's listed in the Torah as one of those materials that is mikabel tumah. A sponge is something that comes from the ocean, and the Gemara in general has a view that anything that derives from the ocean is tahor. In addition, it doesn't have a toch. It's not as shaped like a kli in any way. It doesn't have a receptacle in it. And therefore, for both of those reasons, it's not a clee with regards to Tumah.
Okay, now we're continuing the Gemara. Amar of Nachman, Ana Enlanu, El Beit Shemaik, Rabbi Yehuda, Ubeit Hillel, Rabbi Shimon. We have the version in our Mishnah that Beit Shemai holds like Rabbi Yehuda, which means that Beit Shemai subscribes to Moksa, and Beit Hillel holds like Rabbi Shimon, which means that they don't subscribe to Moksa. So he has the positions of Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel reversed in our Mishnah. Now, as the Bali Tosafot point out, there's actually evidence to Rav Nachman's position in the Mishnayot and Ediyot. Because if you look at the Mishnayot and Ediyot, there's a whole parak there that deals with cases where Beit Shemai is the Kula and Beit Hillel is the Chumrah. This is one of those instances should have been mentioned in that parak in Ediyot. So it seems to be that if it was absent from that parak in Ediyot, that this is not one of those instances and therefore would substantiate this view of Rav Nachman that here Beit Shemai is the Chumrah and who subscribes to Rabbi Yehuda's position of Moksa. So Tosavot says, Enochanami, that that could be a proof, but it still isn't persuasive because then you have our Mishnah here that seems to indicate otherwise. And you have the Mishnah Idiot that indicates the like of Nachman. So it's a stira in the Mishnayot. And so Rav Nachman's just subscribing to that position. It's not machria between which one is the correct version of the Mishnah. The Mishnah continues, Mabirin Mifnea Shuchan Perurim. It says that you're allowed to remove from the table Peruim that are pachot mi kezayit, that are less than a kezayit. The gear so that we have in our Gemara is Misayale the Rabbi Yochanan. This is supportive of Rabbi Yochanan's contention in the Gemara in Brachot. Tam Rabbi Yochanan Peruim she'en bam kezayit asul abdam biyad. Peruim that have less than a kezayit, you can't actively destroy them. You still have to treat them with respect, even though you're allowed to remove them or rid yourself of them. You still have to do it in a way that is respectful for the bread, rather than just throwing them out or discarding them in any way you want. Rashi claims that the reason that that is true is because of the lashon of the Mishnah. The Mishnah says mavirin et peruim. You're allowed to remove the peruim, but it doesn't say that you could throw away the Peirurin. So the fact that the Mishnah used a softer language of Mavirin indicates that you have to take care in removing these items and not simply discard these items. The Baliatosopo think that that diok is very difficult because then what do you do with the ratio of the Mishnah? The beginning of the Mishnah also says over there that Mavirin klipin. Over there nobody believes that you can't just throw those out, that you have any requirement to treat them any differently than any other refuse or garbage that you have, and yet it still loses a Lashon of Mavirin. So how can you be Midayek from the Mavirin here if you're not going to be Midayek the same thing from the first Mavirin? And therefore he says that this diok of Rashi does not seem to be correct. And if you look in the Rabbeinu Hananel, Rabbeinu Hananel actually has a different gears in the Gemara, and this seems to be the gears that the Baliyat Tosafot favor as well, which is that Misayle Rabbi Yochanan Damar, the Rabbi Yochanan says, Perurim she'en bayan kezayit, mutar labdam biyad. It says that Perurim that don't have a kezayit, you're allowed to rid of them even actively. You don't have to do anything special with them. You can rid yourself of them in any way that you choose. And he learns that out from the fact that the Mishnah says, Mavirin, you're allowed to get rid of them, similar to the way it says you get rid of the Yatsamot and the Klipin in the first half of the Mishnah. As well as the fact that it calls it Machal Behema, that it says that these items, including the pods of the peas and the shells of the Adashim and the Perurin are all Machal Behema, shows that you could treat it like Machal Behema and toss it out any which way that you so choose. The next part of the Gemara is Seyar Shel Afunim, the pods of the peas. Mani, who's the author of that part of the Mishnah? Rabbi Shimoni, the late Le Muksa. Must be Rabbi Shimon who doesn't hold the Muksa. This was the Balea Tosafot's proof to the fact that even according to Rabbi Shimon, you still need it to be Ra'oy the Machal Behemah to not be Muksa because that middle section of the Mishnah says that these items, even though they're no longer Ra'oy the Achilat Adam, they are Ra'oy the Achilat Behemah. And therefore, it is authored by Rabbi Shimon telling you that even Rabbi Shimon who does not hold the Muksa still requires that minimum that it be Ra'oy the Achilat Behemah. And that's why I disagree with Rashi's explanation of Atzimot and Klipin in the Mishnah as we noted in the Mishnah.
The Gemara says, "Aim a safer." What are you going to do with the latter part? I mean, the end of the Mishnah it says, "Spog sheishlo beit achizah." If you have a sponge that has a handle on it, mekan chinbo, then you're allowed to utilize it. In love, if it does not have a handle on it, ain't mekan chinbo, then you cannot utilize it. Ata on the Rabbi Yehuda. That sounds like Rabbi Yehuda. Damar davar sheinu mitkavein asur. When you do something unintentionally, then it's problematic on Shabbat. Here, you're not intending to do schita on the sponge. It's just happening because you're grasping the sponge and then it's causing it to come out. But you don't want the water to come out. You'd actually prefer if the water stayed in because you're trying to absorb things with the sponge or clean up things with the sponge. Mar says, Baha, Afilu Rabbi Shimon Modes. We see many times in the Mesechta that even with, it, with regards to this, even Rabbi Shimon agrees that Abayi Virova, Damre Tarvayu, both Abayi and Rabba tell us, Mode Rabbi Shimon, Yamut. In a case where it's an inevitable outcome, then Rabbi Shimon agrees that Darashenu Mitkavain does not save you. Now here, it's an inevitable outcome. If you grasp the sponge, by definition, you're going to squeeze items or liquids out of the sponge, and in doing such, even though it's unintentional, it is inevitable outcome, and that inevitable outcome makes it that it's a problem of psikreshe, and even Rabbi Shimon in that case thinks that it is problematic, and that's the way we can make Rabbi Shimon the author, or the basis for the authorship of the entire Mishnah. Some want to prove from here that this is a case of psikreshe delonechale. This is a case where it's an inevitable outcome that he has no interest in because he doesn't want the liquids to squeeze out of the sponge. And therefore, you see from here that the Gemara believes that even in a case of psikreshe delonechale, that it is problematic according to Rabbi Shimon. That goes back to what we discussed earlier in the Masechta with regards to the machloket of the Bali Tosafot versus the Oroch as to whether psikreshe delonechale According to the Bayi Tosfot, it's still a problem and is patur avalasur. Whereas for the Oroch, it's mutar legamre. And so this might be somewhat of a proof against that position of the Oroch, because over here it seems to be a psikreshid lonechle. Though you could argue that maybe he does want some of the liquids to be discharged from the sponge, and therefore it's not necessarily mukrach that it has to be a case of lonechle. Now the Gemara continues, These pits that come from the Aramean dates, those you're allowed to pick up and remove from the table, because they are based on their mother, mother meaning they are subordinate to the date itself, and since the date was and wasn't muksa, so to the pits that are associated with it are not muksa. But the Persian dates, Asur, are problematic. Now, Rashi over here explains the difference between them. That is that when it comes to the Aramean dates, they are bad dates. They're bad quality dates. And therefore, these dates are sometimes used for human consumption, but many times used for animal consumption. And since the dates themselves, that person has in mind to use them for animal feed, then so do the pits, which are definitely animal feed, get pulled along with the dates themselves. And since when you came into Shabbat, the person might have had in mind both to eat them himself or give them to the animals, so do the dates, the date pits get carried along with that, and therefore they're not muksa because you had in mind to use them for behemah, not necessarily for an adam. On the other hand, the Persian dates are very high quality, and since they're high quality, you would only use them for machal adam. And the problem is, if it's ra'oi for machal adam, then we would not allow you to then, in the middle of Shabbat, take something that is ra'oi la'achilat adam and give it to the behemah. Like Rabbi Yehuda, or the shita of Rabbi Yehuda, which says something that's ra'oi la'achilat adam, it switches to being achilat behemah in the middle of Shabbat. It's not covered by the machshava that you had on the date coming in for Achilat Adam, and therefore it is Muqsa. So that'd be Rashi's distinction here between the Aramean and the Persian dates. On the other hand, if you look down in the Rabbeinu Hananel, he says that the difference is that the Aramean dates, Perish Rakimhain, they're very soft, 
that the pits in the Aramean dates are very soft, and therefore they are edible along with the dates themselves. And therefore, since they're also roi the adam, they aren't muksa. Both the date and the pit itself is not the muksa, and that's why you can carry those pits, as opposed to the Persian dates where the pits are hard, and they're not roi lachilat adam, they're only roi lachilat beima, and therefore it would be problematic because it started out being roi lachilat adam by the date itself, and then the pits afterwards that are residual are only roi lachilat beima, and we saw in Rabbi Yehuda Shita previously that something that switches from Achilat Adam to Achilat Beima is Muksa on Shabbat. Rashi back in Perak Mabema the Kim and Daf Chavtet Amud Aleph actually gives a different explanation as to what the difference is between the Aramean and Persian dates. And over there Rashi suggests that the Aramean dates don't really ripen fully and therefore when you pull the date away from the pit, the pit does not separate easily it leaves residual date on the pit, as opposed to the Persian dates, which ripen fully, and therefore the pits move away or slip away from the date in a very easy manner. That means that the pits from the Persian dates are totally clean. They're just pits. That means that there's no residual ochel from the tamar itself on them, and that means it's switching from something that's roil achilat adam Designed that's Rahul Achilat Beima, which we know again according to Buddha is problematic or muksa. Whereas the Aramean dates, since there's residual of the date itself on the pit, that makes it that not only is the date itself Rahoy, the pit itself is also Rahoy, because you could still eat some of that residual date that's on the pit, and it remains therefore Rahoy Lachilat Adam. If it's Chazul Adam, then it's no longer a problem with muksa, because it remains Chazul Adam. That's why you can remove them, and that's why you also can give them to the Behemah, because they're not a problem with muksa for you to move them, because they're still chazil adam, they're still ra'oi for adam, or there's a possibility that the pits from the Persian dates were always used for kindling fires, and therefore their sole purpose is something that is muksa, as opposed to the Aramean dates, which are softer, and therefore they can be utilized for machal behema or for other items. The first thing to note is that this Gemara seems to follow that shita of Rabbi Yehuda, which is that it's muksa when it switches from machal adam to machal behema. On the other hand, according to Rabbi Shimon, that would not be a problem at all. That means if we pass on like Rabbi Shimon by muksa, none of this is relevant because we would say that all of it is ra'oi, at least the behema. If that's the case, then it would not be true according to Rabbi Shimon. Although in that last explanation we gave that the Persian pits are only used for asaka, then in that case, maybe even Rabbi Shimon would agree that it's problematic because it didn't move down from Achilat Adam to Achilat Behema. It became something that didn't have any utilization because it's for Hasaka, which is something that's totally Asur. And maybe even Rabbi Shimon would agree. Or the Ramban suggests over here that even if you paskin like Rabbi Shimon by Muksa, we don't necessarily paskin like Rabbi Shimon with regards to Nolad, which is an extreme form of Muksa, which is something that is now created on Shabbat or changes its status on Shabbat. So we might paskin like Rabbi Shimon in general Muksa, but by Nolad we wouldn't. And therefore this would be the Halacha, even though it's like Shittai Rabbi Huda, because it's in the world of Nolad. The other thing that is somewhat bothersome about this Gemara is what we left off with in yesterday's Gemara, which is there we had the position of Rova, who held like Rabbi Yehuda that there is muksa? We said over there when he was going into Yom Tov, since he had in mind that the animal or the bird's entrails would not be useful on Yom Tov for him, he already designated or in his mind he had them that they were ra'oi the behema. So why can't you say the same thing about the dates over here? 
When the person comes into Shabbat, he knows he's not going to eat the pits once he finishes the dates. So why don't we say when he came into Shabbat, he had in mind to eat the fruit, and the pits themselves are going to be rolled with the behemah, and therefore he had it in mind from the outset, just like Rova had that in mind with regards to the entrails of the bird. So Tosafot on yesterday's daf made a distinction between them, and says that there's a difference between the entrails and the pits. With regards to the pits, the date needs the pits. In order for the date to preserve itself, or in order to remain so that it doesn't spoil, it needs to remain whole, and the pit is a part of that. And so therefore, the date needs the pit, so you can't say that I'm going to separate those items out and say one's for me and one's for the behemoth. On the other hand, with regards to the entrails of the bird, they're not necessary to keep the bird for the next day. They're actually not helpful. They might even be detrimental because they're going to go bad before the rest of the bird goes bad. And therefore, over there, since they are not necessary for the preservation of the bird, you can separate them out in your mind going into Shabbat and say that the bird is for human consumption and the entrails are for animal consumption. And that way, Tosaf will distinguish between our case over here and the case that we saw in yesterday's Daf. So now the Gemara continues with stories of Amoraim that seem to subscribe to what we just said in the Gemara with regards to these date pits. And that is that Shmuel, Metautolu Agav Rifto, that Shmuel used to carry the dates by putting them on top of a loaf of bread. And as Tosafot says over here, we know that Shmuel holds like Rabbi Shimon, that he does not subscribe to Muksa. So then why did Shmuel do this? If he doesn't subscribe to Muksa, he should be able to take the date pits without having to do anything with it. So Tosafot suggests that Shmuel is similar to the Amoraim that we saw at the end of yesterday's daf, who were machmir on themselves. And when Rav Yosef complained about the behavior of Rav and Abaye, why do you do this? Don't you hold like Rabbi Yehuda? that these are problems of muksa, the Chachamim said, even Rabbi Yehuda would agree in this case that it is mutar, and the only reason I did it is because I'm an Odom Choshu. And so it also suggests the same thing with regards to Shmuel, that even though he holds like Rabbi Shimon, he put it on top of a loaf of bread in order to carry it, because he was an Odom Choshu, and he didn't want people to get the wrong impression or get the wrong idea. But in Okanami, for Shmuel himself, he didn't need to do that. The Gemara says that this is Shmuel Tameh, this is Shmuel Ashitatod, Amr Shmuel Osedam Kotzerchol Bepat. Person allowed to do whatever they want with a loaf of bread, meaning that you can use it not just for Achila, you can use it for any other purpose that you need. Like in this instance, you need to put the pits on top of it so you can carry the pits later. You're allowed to use the pot for that, and that is not in any way a denigration of the status of the bread. Now we have another case. Our is Rabba Metaltalu Agav Lakno Demayo. Rabba used to carry them on a pitcher of water that he used to put the pits on top of it. The gears that we have is not so problematic. Tosafot similarly has a gears of Rova Metaltel. You can see that in the Bali Tosafot down below. And then he has a problem because we just saw on the previous Amud that Rova holds like Rabbi Yehuda. So why did Rova say before that the only reason that the raw meat, he was able to use it by putting something of heter on top of it, is because it was raw lakus, because you could chew it or eat it raw, you could be having it as carpaccio, that's the only reason that it was mutar, meaning that he subscribes to the din of muksa. If Rova holds like Rabbi Yehuda, then you have a problem of muksa. Why does placing the pit on top of something do anything for you in this instance? Because if it's muksa, putting it on top of the pitcher just means you put muksa on top of the pitcher, and it shouldn't help you to be able to carry it afterwards. So why is it over here that Rova is metatulu agavlakna demaya? So Tosavot states over here that there's a difference between items that you can deal with before Shabbat and items that you can't deal with before Shabbat, which is that Rova, by a case of like the raw meat of the bird, which is something that could have been dealt with before Yom Tov. Those instances that if you don't deal with them before Yom Tov, then we would subscribe to Yudah and say it's a problem of Muksa on Shabbat itself. And if you didn't deal with it before Shabbat, it's problematic. On the other hand, by cases of the pits of the dates where you can't deal with it before Shabbat because they're inside the dates before Shabbat. 
Never you have no other option besides to take them out on Shabbat. Over there, even Rabbi Huda would agree, according to Rava, that you have a dispensation to put them on top of something that's had there and remove them in that manner. So Tosvod says that the items on the previous Amur are things that you could have taken care of and dealt with before Shabbat. Since you could have dealt with them before Shabbat, then it's not permitted to deal with them on Shabbat unless you did something to make them head there, or they were of head there because they could be utilized on Shabbat. Whereas the Karinim of the Perot, where you can't have access to them before Shabbat, Chamin were Mekil. That then the Ramban says that the cases are fundamentally different. And that is because the Gemara before was dealing with an object that was muksa, and now you're putting Hector on top of it in order to make it mutar to carry it. In that case, the Hector on top wouldn't help you unless the object itself wasn't of muksa. Over here, it's the opposite way around. You're putting the muksa on top of the Hector. And since the Hector is the primary object, it can deal with the muksa even though it's fully muksa like Rabbi Yehuda. And so therefore, even according to Rabbi Yehuda, you can distinguish between the cases. In the case before, the Rova, the raw meat was the core item, and you put something on top of it to make it head there. Over here, the core item is the pitcher, you're putting something of muks on top. In the case where you put the little muks on top, that you can carry, and it's not a problem even according to Rabbi Yehuda. Similar to the what our Mishnah says over here, that you're allowed to carry away the tabletop with the klipot and the atzamot on them, even though those are objects of muksa, because the core item or the base is a dover head there. Whereas the case before, where the core item is the muksa, and you're putting heter on top, it only works if the core item also is not muksa. Yeshua used to pile up the pits in front of him until they became disgusting, and therefore became like a urinal or a feces pot, and therefore you're allowed to remove them on Shabbat because it's so unpleasant. So he made it into the point where it became like a garbage dump or disgusting in front of him, and then you have permission because of Gerev Shorei to remove them. Samarei Ravashi Lameimah, Ravashi says Lameimah, I don't understand why that is a solution to the problem. It's one thing, if you have a Gerev Shorei, we allow you to remove it. But who says you can make a Gerev Shorei from the outset? Here he's intentionally making it into a Gerev Shorei, so he'll have to remove it. Afterwards, that's not something we permit. We permit Bidiavad. If you already have a Gerev Shorei, you have garbage that piled up over Shabbat, and now you need to remove it, it's beginning to smell, then we'll let you remove it. Or you have a urinal that got filled up, then you can remove it. But to create the Gerv Shorei intentionally so that you can remove it, I don't think the Aloha permits such a thing. Rav Sheshit used to spit them out with his tongue, it makes it sound like he spit them out past the table so they wouldn't lay on the table itself. But Papa Mita, Mita here means the beds, the couches that they used to lean on when they ate. So he used to throw them behind the bed that he was on. Makes it sound like he did get them into his hand and then throw them over, so he was still in contact with them, but he would never place them down on the table. He would remove them immediately behind himself on the bed. Amr Olava, Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkulus. They say about Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkulus, Shaya machzir panava zorkan. He used to turn his face the other way and spit them out behind the mitah, so he didn't even have to handle them. He would spit them out in the first place behind him, so it was actually a derech of both tzniyut, and it was a extra caution, so he didn't have to deal with muksa. What's so interesting about this is that Zechariah ben Avkulos appears other places in Shas, and that is in the Gemara in Gitin and Afnun Vav. He is the individual that after Bar Kamsa was slighted in the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, he goes to the Roman authorities and, and tells them that the Jews have rebelled against you. So they say, how do you know that? How can you prove that? He said, send them a korban and see if they'll be makrivet. So he, the Caesar sends a korban, and Bar Kamsa puts a mum in it that's not a mum for non-Jews, but is a mum for the Jews. 
Then he brings the Korban to see if they're going to put it on the Mizbeach. So the Chachamim say, let us put it on the Mizbeach, otherwise we're going to be rooted by the Romans if we don't do this. Rezichayi Bav Kulu steps up and says, how can you do that? You're going to be putting a Balmum on the Mizbeach. So then they figure, all right, let's kill Bar Kamsel so he can't go back and report to the Caesar. Then Rabbi Zechariah ben Yavkula says you're going to learn from that that a person who puts a mum in Kodoshim has a death penalty. So Rabbi Yochanan says about Rabbi Zechariah ben Yavkulus on Vantuna Atol that the humility of Zechariah ben Yavkulus destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. And if you actually look here in the Tosefta of the Gemara Shabbat, Perak Yud Zayin, Halacha Dalet, it says exactly that quote, Amr Rabbi Yossi, Caused the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. That's based on what we saw in the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, where he can't come to a conclusion about what to do with the problem. And therefore he doesn't do anything, and it ends up going back to Rome and causing the Romans to come to deal with the issue, and it ends up in the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. What the Gemara is saying is that he was so careful, and he was so concerned, about not doing the right thing, like over here you see such concern for this and humility and he didn't want to do something wrong, that he was unable to, when it came to making the hard decision or the very difficult decision, to say that we need to deal with this person. If we don't deal with them, it's going to land us in huge trouble if this gets back to the Romans. And therefore you have to take some extrajudicial action in that case, otherwise it's going to end up with a very difficult situation. And he wasn't willing to step up and take that action in that case. And that's where Yossi points to him and says that that humility, that inability to stand up and do this here, even though, yes, people might read it incorrectly or many people come to the wrong conclusion, nevertheless, it would have saved the Beit HaMikdash. And his humility caused the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash because of that. And because of that meticulousness and that fear of doing anything wrong, in our case over here, he made sure to spit it behind him so he wouldn't have to enter into the possibilities of deciding whether it was Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai, or whether it was a Gerv Sharei, or any of the other possibilities over here. He avoided the whole thing by spitting it out behind himself. And similarly, that caused the problem by the Churban Abayit, because he worried about every possibility or every and feared even the smallest of minutia, that it led him to the inability to make that decision or to see clearly about that which was no lie, that which was opening up in front of him or what was going to happen if he didn't deal with it. The Chatham Sofer in the Gemara Gedin has a nice explanation also, which is that Rashi claims that Rabbi Zechariah ben Abtulus was a sablan. He was very patient and he was able to deal with things. And he explains that that's what's happening in our Gemara over here. He was very patient and therefore he didn't feel like it was a Gerv Sharei who would bother him to have all those things in front of him. And therefore the only way for him to rid himself of these pits was to spit them behind him because if he put them on the table he wouldn't reach that point where it was so disgusting that he wanted to remove them. And similarly, in the case of Barkamsa and Barkamsa, the host that abused Barkamsa and didn't act appropriately should have been a cause for the Chachamim to walk out from the Su'uda. Yet, the Zechariah ben Abdullah didn't walk out and implicitly endorsed this person and his behavior because he was a Savlan. He didn't let anything bother him. He didn't let people upset him, and he never got angry or upset, and therefore he was willing to allow this to go on, even though he should have stood up and taken a position or taken action in that case. And because he didn't take action, he was indirectly the cause of the Churban Abayit. And of course, it's Minyana Duyoma, since we're learning this during the Shvua Shechalbo Tishabav. And with that, we finish the 21st parak, Hajanalach, Nutel Adam, et Bino. Okay, now the next parak begins, Chavit Shinish Bira. If you have a barrel or you have a storage utensil that breaks on Shabbat, this is very similar to the situation in which there's a fire in the house 
on Shabbat, you have permission to salvage from that item three seudot. We don't allow you to take more because if we allow you to continue to salvage that what's coming out, we're afraid you're going to bring Kelim, Derech in order to save it because he's Bahul Mamono. person is crazed or consumed by saving his possessions and everybody's he's going to forget himself and do something that violates Shabbat in order to save it. But not only is he allowed to do it, he can tell other people, you guys can also come and take for yourselves, meaning that you're allowed to also, each one of them take shlosh su'udot. The only thing you're not allowed to do is absorb it, take it into a sponge. Now, first of all, in terms of salvaging it, as Rashi notes over here, all this is allowed to be done into multiple kalim. You're allowed to save shlosh su'udot. Because into one kli, you're allowed to save as much as you can. Like we said back on the kuf chaf amud alif, where we were talking about the fire, there, we said that if you have one kli, you can take out as much as you can in that single kli. It's only when you have multiple kalim that we start limiting you to shalosh su'udot. And Rashi says the same thing applies over here. If you're in a single kli, you can salvage whatever it can fit into that kli. If you're already bringing multiple kalim, we limit you or we cap you out at shalosh su'udot, that which is sufficient for the remainder of Shabbat. And similarly, the other parties have that same limitation of three su'udot. Tosvo back on Kufi Yudzayin Amudbed asks, why doesn't the Gemara back there by Deleka bring a proof from our Mishnah that there is this limitation because we're afraid of a person being a dumb Bahula Mimono and he's going to carry Birshuta Rabim. And that's exactly the reason behind our Mishnah. Why doesn't the Gemara there bring that as a proof that we worry about these issues? So the Baliyat Tosvo there bring a number of answers, one of which is that the case by us is a case of a Carmelite or a Rishuta Rabim and we're worried about them carrying Daladamot Birshuta Rabim Whereas the case in the, the Mishnah in Kol Kitve, where it's being about a fire, it's being about a case of a chatzer, where it's a place that's mutar to carry, and they're still saying that there's a bahula mimono, so therefore you can't bring a proof from it. The other possibility is that the re suggests that our case is different, because in the case by the fire, or the case that they bring over there in the Brayta, it's a case where the item has broken, but the materials or the wine is still inside of the barrel. Over here, it's a case where it's already spilled on the ground, and then you're trying to collect it from the ground, and that he proves from the fact that you want to sponge it up, or there's a possibility of sponging it up. And the Rashbam, in the name of the Rabbeinu Tam, suggests that that's only true in a case where you have it broken, and there's a large amount of wine that's coming out. But when it's dripping or cracked, and there's wine that's coming out of it, you're allowed to bring barrels in to collect it, because then the person's not bahul, and he won't bring the kelim, derchushutarabim, because he has time to deal with it, and therefore will be thoughtful about dealing with it. So that's just an additional qualification that the Rashbam makes in the name of Reinu Tam, that all of this is when it's already coming out at high speed, and therefore the person's Baba Mamono. It's coming up in a slow manner, then you can deal with it, and we don't worry about it. Now Rashi says that the reason you can't be sufeged is because Gzeira Shemi Yishot. The problem is that if you absorb it into a sponge, and then put that sponge into a different kli, we're afraid that you're going to squeeze the sponge to get the liquids out, either to go back and then sponge up more, or in order to release the liquids from the sponge. So that's a problem of Shema Yishchot. And Tosvo points out over here that this is, even if it has a handle on it, that there's no chashash of schita, it's still asur, because as we're going to see in the Gemara, there's an additional reason to make it asur over here, not just the problem of Shema Yishchot. Ein person can't squeeze fruits in order to get the juices from the fruit. 
if they leached out on their own, Asurim, it's problematic. As Rashi explains over here, that's Gzeir Hashem The problem is that he might come to do it, meaning that if you are Sochet Peirot, it's the Malocha of Mifarek, which is a Toledav Disha, and you're separating an item away from its core, you're separating something that you want, the juices away from the peels or the shells of the item, and so that's called Mifarek or Disha, and that's a problem de Oraita. If it leaches by itself, that's fine. The problem is that if we allow you to take the liquids that leach by themselves, we're afraid then that you will take that as permission to go and do more or accelerate that liquid leaching, and therefore you're going to come to do schitan Shabbat, and therefore we are oseret. Rabbi Yehuda makes a distinction and says, Im if you pick these fruits for using them as food items, mutar. any liquid that leaches out of them is mutar, and that is because we assume that if you want it for ochel, you actually do not want the liquids to leach out because it ruins it as a fruit. When you want to eat grapes as a food item, you don't want the liquid to come out because then they're no longer good to eat. And so the liquid leaving is actually detrimental to you and therefore it's not going to cause you to do schita of the fruit. On the other hand, in mashkim, if they were picked for their juices and you want to utilize them for their juices, asur, that which is exuded or that which emanates from them is going to be problematic because of the xera that we saw the Chachamim. If, if we allow you to use that which came out by itself, you're going to come to squeeze it out as well. Chalot devash shiriskan. If you have honeycombs that you've completely crushed, meaning to allow the honey to now separate away from the wax and the comb itself, Mayor of Shabbat, you did this already before Shabbat, and it continues to be exuded, emanate, leech from the honeycomb all on Shabbat, then the Chachamim say it's asurin, it's problematic because we worry about the fact that you might come to crush it on Shabbat. Rabbi Eliezer Matir, because he says here, there's no fear. Once the honeycomb is already crushed or opened up, the honey comes out, there's no way to do more than has already been done. So then, if you're not going to go and do more schita here, because the schita that you've done is already in motion, and there's no more that you can do. And therefore, Rabbi Eliezer believes, since it's already in motion, and you can't come to do something wrong, there's no gzeira. Chameem say, gzeira ato. If you allow you to do this, and take from the honeycombs already been crushed, or scraped out, you're going to go and scrape another honeycomb, and then have that honey come out on Shabbat, and that's why they are oser. Gemara says, Tana, lo yispog b'yayin, lo yitapeach b'shemen. You're not allowed to use a sponge to absorb up the wine that spilled out of some utensil. You're not allowed to take your hand to scoop out the shemen that fell out and then wipe it on the edge of a utensil to get that shemen or recover that shemen. Because this is a problem, as Rashi says, of uvdin dechol. And that's what Tosafot said in the Mishnah, that even when you have a sponge with a handle on it, it's not a problem of shemen yischot, there's a separate problem of uvdin dechol. That this is the way you do it on a weekday, and we don't want you engaging in activities that are weekday activities both because it ruins the spirit of Shabbat, and also can lead you to do other items that will be malacha on Shabbat, because you're engaging in activity that is a weekday activity, rather than having the mindset or mind frame of being encompassed in the Shabbat. Similarly, if you have fruits that spilled out in the chatzer, in your courtyard, you're allowed to collect them one by one or slowly by hand, and you have to eat them. Tosafot over here says that he thinks the word ochel is not in the girsa. There's no requirement that you eat them. You just have to collect them slowly by doing it by hand, but you can't do it. 
you can't put it in, into a large or small basket, because that's uvdin dechol. So Tosavot says the whole problem here is uvdin dechol, and if you don't need to eat them in order to eliminate the uvdin dechol, and therefore, as long as you pick them up by hand and do it slowly, there's no problem. You can collect them, go back and collect more of them. That's fine, because that's not uvdin dechol, and that's fine on Shabbat. And the Rebbein Yonah adds an additional qualification, which is that it sounds like from here that they have to be dispersed across the chatzer. They fell into a single location, then it would be fine to pick them up. That would not be a problem moved in the hole because you're not gathering them from all the areas that they were scattered to. On the other hand, the Rif and the Rambam keep the Girsub Ochel in, and for them, only when you take them into your lap or you collect them slowly and eat them are you allowed to do that? And that might be because they have a different reason as to why it's Asur. That according to the Baal Yatosvot, the only problem here is Uvdin Dechol. According to the Ramban, the situation, the story here is that the fruits dispersed throughout the Chatser, and they got caught up in the Tzrarot and the Afar, they got caught up in the pebbles and the dirt that was there, and you need to separate them. And the problem here is it looks like Borer when you're taking the fruits out. So the only way I allow you to do that is because we know that when you're borer v'ochel, that it's okay. So it's not real borer necessarily, but it looks like borer. But if you eat them, that would be permissible even if it was real borer. If you, if you followed all the qualifications of how you can do borer, miyad, biyad, and ochel mitok psolet. So that would be the case here because you would eat the fruits immediately afterwards. And that's why the Ramban says you must eat them. The Ramam has an unusual sheet over here which says that when you collect the fruits and pile them up together again, you are a mare where you're piling up, you are stacking the items in the field. So the Ramam claims that that's what the issue is over here, that you're going to take the fruits and press them together into a single entity, and then you'll be in violation of Ma'amer, which is this stacking in the fields, which is one of the Av Melachot. The problem with that is that Ma'amer only applies to the area or the field in which the fruits actually grew. Here you pile them into a basket in your chatzer, how do you have a din of Ma'amer? So the Egle Tal suggests that the Rambam has two dinim of a Ma'amer. It's true that once you leave the field where the items were and it was already piled up or gathered together, you can't have Ma'amer again. On the other hand, when it comes to a new type of Ma'amer that you're doing, you do something in addition to that which was done in the field. And the Ramam worries over here that you're going to press the fruits together and make them into a single unit. That's called Ma'amer. That can even apply outside of the area where the fruits grew. And so that's what the Ramam worries about over here, is that if we allow you to collect them into the sow or the kupa, you're going to end up pressing them together and doing the malach of Ma'amer. And that's why you only can collect them and eat them so that they're not residual, they're not all there together in a single location to press them together. So we're actually going to stop here by the two dots here in the middle of the dot because what the next sugya continues all the way through into tomorrow's dot, and we'll do that tomorrow. But before we end off, we're just going to give some of the fundamentals that we'll need to know for tomorrow's dot. The first of which is that when it comes to fruits, there are different categories of fruits. There are certain fruits that are designated, delineated by default, used for their liquids and for their juices. And the Gemara notes those, we'll see in the, in the remainder of the daf that Zaytim and Anavim, olives and grapes, are primarily grown for their liquids. And that is because, again, in the time before refrigeration, the only way to really store grapes or store olives was actually to press them into the liquid because wine would then ferment and the olive oil was able to be preserved. And that would someday to have shelf life to it. So that would be their primary purpose. On the other hand, there are certain fruits where their primary utility of those fruits is to be eaten. And that's by all other types of fruits. As the Gemara in Brachot says that the juices that come out of fruits, like an orange and an apple, are Zeyab Alma. They're just like waste that comes out of it because in their day they had nothing to do with it. 
They didn't have refrigeration. It had no shelf life. If you actually squeezed these items and took out the juice, it would have very limited usage for you, and it would not stay. And therefore, people ate the fruits and not used them for their juices. And for that reason, the bracha in the Gemara and brachot on fruit juices is shahakol, as opposed to bari priya eats or bari priya gofen. There is a middle category of fruits, which we'll bump into tomorrow, and those are tutim and rimonim. Tutim and rimonim were sometimes utilized for their eating purposes, and sometimes they were used for their liquids, or pressed for their liquids. You see tomorrow that pomegranate juice was considered to be acidic or able to ferment, and therefore it might have had shelf life as well. That is the in-between fruits. If items like zaytim and anavim, by default, we assume that you're collecting them or utilizing them for their juices. Where it's uncertain and therefore you need to declare what it is or you need to decide what it is. And then there are items like regular fruits where by definition they're picked for their being eaten rather than for their juices. And again, unless you state otherwise, but that'll be the default status. Now that has implications as to whether we worry about you squeezing these items. By the other fruits, we don't worry about you doing Shema Yishot because people don't squeeze them for their juices. Other than by zaytim and anavim, which are primarily for the juices, we do worry about people shem yischot. Other than by tutim and rimonim, that is the area where the machloket between Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim is going to play out, because those are items where sometimes they're used for yechila and sometimes they're used for schita, for their juices, and therefore do we worry about shem yischot? Chachamim say, yes, we do worry about shem yischot, whereas Rabbi Yehuda says, we only worry about it if you pick them primarily for their juice, but if you pick them for their achila, we don't worry about it. So that's, first of all, one issue that could be is Shema Yischot. And Shema Yischot then would be relevant depending on what type of fruit you're speaking about. There is a separate issue called Nolad, which is that you're creating something new on Shabbat. The difference between them will be that if you take a piece of chicken and cut it in half, you didn't do anything that's not Nolad. You just cut one piece into two pieces. That's the same item. It's what's called Ochla de Ifradu. It's a piece of food that fell away from a bigger piece of food. So if you have Ochel, and juice emanates from something that's ochel, we look at that possibly as uchla difrat. That is, even though the juices are embedded in it, the juices are just a part of the ochel that's there, and if it separates away, it's just more ochel that steps away from a bigger piece of ochel. On the other hand, if you want the item for its juice, or you pick it for its mashkim, then when you squeeze the item, what comes out of it is nolad. It's something that is brand new. You have a solid item in ochel, and now you're converting it into a liquid by squeezing out the liquid, which is a totally new category, a mashkeh versus an ochel. And so Rabbi Yehuda's position could be premised on one of those two things. Rabbi Yehuda's position could be premised on the fact that Shema Yischot only applies to items that are used primarily for their juices. And therefore, when you pick it for its juice, that's when we worry about it. But if you pick it for ochel, we don't worry about you squeezing it out for juice because you don't want the juice. It's actually detrimental. Or it could be that Rabbi Yehuda's position is based on nolad which is that when you squeeze something and juice out, you're creating something new. That's only true when you have something that's a solid item and you're converting it into a liquid. Then if you pick it to be an ochel in the first place and then the juice that comes out of it is also an ochel because you don't want it to be a liquid. You want it primarily for its eating purposes. It remains an ochel. It's an ochel and an ochel. It's as if you cut away a piece of chicken from another piece of chicken and that's why it's mutar. One of those two reasons could be the explanation behind Rabbi Yudha's position. Either it's because of Shema Yischot, and therefore he differentiates between Ochel and Mashkeh, or it could be because of Nolad, and therefore he differentiates between Ochel and Mashkeh. And that difference would explain the first two positions of Moraim that we're going to see in tomorrow's Daf, That Rabbi Yudah agrees to the Chachamim's position with regards to olives and grapes, Maitaima, came into the Schita Nino Yahiv Dateh. 
since their primary purpose, their default purpose is for their liquids, that's what he intends. And therefore, he agrees to the Chachamim's position there that there's no difference between whether he picked them or he wanted them primarily for Achilah or Mishdiyah, because since their primary purpose and the default status and the role of what people use them for is their liquids, even if he brings them in for Achilah, when he sees liquids start to leach or emanate from them, he's just going to assume he wants to squeeze them, and he's going to continue on to squeeze them. That means that Rabbi Yehuda clearly believes that the problem here is Shema Yitzchot, and therefore he agrees to the Chachamim's position with regards to olives and grapes. On the other hand, we have a position of Rav, which is, That even by Zaytim and Anavim, Rabbi Yehuda still holds of his position and differentiates between Achila and Shtiyah. If that's the case, then Rabbi Yehuda's position is likely premised on Nolad, which is that, is there something new being created here or not? That depends on whether you want it for Achila or you want it for Shtiyah. And that's why he'll continue to argue, even by Zaytim and Anavim, where their primary purpose is for their liquids. Nevertheless, if you intend for Achila, it makes it into something that is ochel, and if it's ochel, the liquids that emanate from it are ochladifrat, and there isn't the problem of nolat. The other thing you need to know for tomorrow's daf is that there is a concept called hechsher the kabul tumah, priming something to be mekabel tumah, and that is by all food items, solid food items, in order for them to be able to be mekabel tumah, they need to be washed by a liquid. The Gemara tells us in other places that the liquids that qualify are seven liquids that have the status like mayim, like water, and therefore they are able to be machshir, items to be makabal tumah. The acronym for that is Yad Shachadam, that is Yayin, Dam, Shemen, Chalav, Tal, Dvash, and Mayim. Those are the seven liquids, and any one of those seven liquids can be machshir, the kabel tumah. Now, there is a requirement in the Torah that it says that, Keyutan, when the liquids end up on this item, which is a passive verb, which means no matter how they end up on the item, they are priming it or machshir at the Kabul Tumah. On the other hand, the word is not spelled with a vav, it's spelled chaser vav, and therefore if you read it without knowing the nikudot, it would be kiyitain, which means actively or intentionally placing it. And therefore the Gemara learns from that, that kiyutan, when something is placed, it has to be placed kiyitain, similar to if you want it actively. So the liquid does not have to end up on the item actively in order for it to make it into a hechsher lekabel tumah. It can even happen passively. But even if it happens passively, it has to be similar to a case where you put on actively. That means you have to want it. You have to desire that the liquid actually wash the item. And that has two different points in time, which is that that ratzon or that need for you to want it to be there has to be either at the time that the liquid is produced and then like you collected it in a bowl because you wanted to capture the rainwater so even though you didn't want the fruits to fall in there, but you wanted the rainwater that you collected, that's called the ratzon. Or if the water was there and your fruits fell in there and you're happy with that because now wash the fruits, that's also called the ratzon. Over here, we're going to deal with a third category of ratzon, and that is when the liquid actually leaves the source. So in tomorrow's day, we're going to speak about blood that emanates from a wound, milk that emanates from an animal, milk that emanates from a woman. Over there, there's also a requirement that it be done. In some cases, the ratzon. In other cases, it's the ratzon and shalom the ratzon. And it depends on what the source is. For instance, by blood that comes out of a wound, it's never a ratzon that you want that. And therefore, blood that emanates is always, whether it's the ratzon or the ratzon, it is a liquid that has the capacity to be machshir the kabel tumah. When there's milk that emanates from a woman, it could be the ratzon or shalom the ratzon. That's either because, as Rashi is going to say, it's defined as a mashket. And therefore, it doesn't matter how it, it is exuded, or how it emanates from the woman, or, according to the Bayatosafot, because of the principle that we have in the Gemara Nidah, that the woman's blood, the cessation of the menstruating of the woman, that blood is then converted into milk, and just like, like the blood of a wound 
is something that doesn't have to be Loretzon. So too, the milk that emanates from the woman doesn't have to be Loretzon. So then, Rabbi Kiva and the Chachamim are going to argue about the applicability of that Loretzon, Loretzon, by the milk of a woman, to the milk of a behemah. What is there a differentiation? Because over there, you want the chalav to, you want the chalav to be useful to you and not just pour out of the animal. Or maybe they should be the same. And then we'll discuss that further in tomorrow's daf.